HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. People that work in restaurants are, are going to be relying on that weekly paycheck, that daily paycheck, and those tips especially. They, they can't take a day off to self-quarantine. They can't take um, three days off because their business has slowed down and their boss is cutting their hours or whatever may be the case that's going to impact their daily and weekly earning potential. We need to do whatever we can to mitigate that. So uh, again, it's my suggestion is just go out there and, and eat and support and, and spend your money at these neighborhood places that really truly need the help always. COVID-19 is here, and as of this week, plans for reducing its impact are starting to affect Americans' day-to-day lives. That was Eli Sussman talking about the problems it's already causing for our restaurant community. When we started working on this episode a few weeks ago, only a handful of cases were reported in the U.S., but now hundreds of events have been canceled or suspended, including South by Southwest and the remainder of the NBA season. The stock market is basically a financial roller coaster due to the global uncertainty in the face of COVID-19, and President Trump has instituted a ban on travel from Europe, except the UK, but it continues to spread in communities across the country. The landscape is constantly changing, but we can expect to see further disruption to business as usual. Right now, we're taking time to better understand the phenomena surrounding outbreaks, from global pandemics to foodborne illnesses. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. Whether it's a virus or a widespread foodborne illness, outbreaks can easily induce panic. Since the coronavirus spread to the U.S. a few weeks ago, people have been buying in bulk. Shelves are emptying as shoppers load carts with canned goods, pasta, and hand sanitizer. This also means that people have stopped eating out as they withdraw from aspects of public life. For our first story, Kevin Chang Barnum reports on how Chinese restaurants in New York have been impacted by coronavirus so far. If you've been to your favorite restaurant in Manhattan's Chinatown recently, you may have noticed a change. Things have gotten quieter since the first reports identified the new coronavirus in January. Truman Lam is the manager of Jingfang Restaurant, which has been in Chinatown for over 40 years. 
Truman started noticing a decrease in customers on Chinese New Year. This year, the holiday fell on January 25th, four days after the CDC announced the first confirmed case of coronavirus in the U.S. Typically, that, that time gets really busy, so it's a little harder to tell, but you could even tell by then that it was drastically slower than normal. That trend continued. Truman says that at the annual Chinese New Year parade, he usually sees people celebrating into late afternoon. But this year, when you walk on the streets about 3, 4 o'clock, the garbage trucks were really sweeping the, the, the streets, right? Typically, that doesn't happen. Typically, there's just too many people for them to even start doing that. That change came despite reassurances from the NYC health commissioner. She sent out a tweet on the day of the celebration, reminding people that there was no need to change their plans due to coronavirus. For Jing Fong, the weeks after Chinese New Year are especially busy in most years. Um, and this year, it's just, this is slower than our slow season right now. Um, and that's a major drop-off. When I talked to Truman at his restaurant in Chinatown, there was a divider that sectioned off about a third of the 800-seat dining room. Truman told me that he puts the dividers up during lunch service now to block the view of all the empty seats. You know, the business is down probably anywhere from like 30 to 50 percent, depending on the day. Wilson Tang is the owner of Namwa Tea Parlor in Chinatown, which is celebrating its 100th year in business. Wilson also noticed a decline in sales when news of coronavirus came out. We took like a nosedive the first week, like close to 40% off. And it's not just restaurants in Manhattan's Chinatown that coronavirus has impacted. Wilson told me that Chinatowns in Flushing, Queens and Sunset Park, Brooklyn have been hurt even more. A lot of places, especially like in 8th Avenue, Brooklyn, the dim sum places, they are actually not open Monday through Wednesday. They rather close and let their employees go and just open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, because it's not worth that effort to open up the restaurant, get all the food going, get, all the, get the place staffed up when there's no one coming in. Some of these struggles are unavoidable as a result of travel restrictions. We also have lost a lot of like tourist business because, you know, of just um, the lack of flights, right? The people are just not coming in because they can't. But both Jingfang and Namwa have Manhattan locations outside of Chinatown. Those restaurants haven't seen the same decrease in sales. Namwa Tea Parlor's locations in Nolita and the Lower East Side are less than a mile from the original one. Those have seen uh, drop-offs but not as, as huge as the ones that are based in, in Chinatown. Some New Yorkers seem to be avoiding Chinatown specifically. Truman told me about one of his friends who works near City Hall in Lower Manhattan. We typically meet for lunch, you know, once a month type of thing, once every few weeks. And, you know, one of those days we were just, let's meet up for lunch. Oh, let's meet somewhere else outside of Chinatown. You know, I'm trying to avoid that area in general. And City Hall to Chinatown is maybe like five blocks. The CDC website points out that Chinese Americans are not more likely than other Americans to get the coronavirus. I think what's happening right now, there's a lot of uh, xenophobia going on. Instances of harassment of Asians have been in the news since the coronavirus was identified. Asian people have reported being physically assaulted and called disgusting. In New York, the Daily News revealed that a staffer for a state assemblywoman 
shared a Facebook message telling people to stay away from Chinese businesses. The assemblywoman later apologized, and the staffer was fired. I've even seen instances of Asian people being singled out myself. I was on the subway in Manhattan while working on this story, and I saw one rider offering hand sanitizer to the only Asian person close by. When the hand sanitizer was refused, the person offering it seemed insistent. Are you sure? They asked. There is a lot of fear within the Chinese community of New York too. There is this sinophobia where they don't even want to be in the vicinity of other Chinese people because there's fear of them catching the, the virus and whatnot. In order to combat xenophobia and sinophobia, Wilson hopes people continue to learn more about what measures they should and should not take to stay healthy, because the situation can change. City residents should stay up to date about official recommendations. I think there needs to be a lot more education、uh, going forward, especially when there's the news is that it's getting worse before, it, or it will get worse before it gets better. If people continue to avoid certain restaurants, Truman worries about what will happen to his employees. There's a human aspect in it, in that you you definitely want to take care of your employees, but if the business doesn't survive, you can't even help take care of those employees at all. Wilson says that though his effort to educate people through press coverage and social media has seen some success, not all businesses have the capacity for that. He hopes people will support Chinatown. If not for me, at least my neighbors and my other other people in my industry, you know, that are are suffering like because they don't have like the social media push that we have, or someone like myself willing to speak to people. There is no guarantee things will improve for restaurants. Truman is concerned about Jingfang's future. Hopefully, it picks back up because that's really the only chance we have of of getting by this.、Um, Until next year, so if if next February things don't change, we probably won't be here. A couple of weeks after their conversation, Truman told Kevin that business was even worse. On March twelfth, Jing Fong announced it would temporarily close after New York placed a ban on gatherings above five hundred people, and ordered all restaurants to operate at fifty percent capacity. Jing Fong's Upper West Side restaurant plans to remain open. Additionally, four popular restaurants in Sunset Park's Chinatown have temporarily closed. As Kevin said, make sure to stay informed as recommendations change. Next up, Ruby Walsh takes us to Japan, where one nonprofit spent weeks working around the clock to feed passengers aboard a quarantined cruise ship. On February second, passengers aboard the Diamond Princess celebrated the final evening of their two-week cruise. Guests crowded the dance floors, theaters, and bars of the ship, but anxiety rippled beneath the festivities. Earlier in the evening, the captain announced that a passenger had been diagnosed with coronavirus. Just a few days later, health officials confirmed several more cases on board. By February fifth, the Diamond Princess was on lockdown. At one point, the ship held the largest concentration of cases outside of mainland China. The guests were able to quarantine in their room, but the crew didn't have that. Right, didn't have that advantage. So. We were trying to come in and develop a plan to feed the passengers and the crew with the least amount of people moving around the ship. That's Josh Phelps, relief operations manager for the nonprofit World Central Kitchen, founded in 2010 by renowned chef Jose Andreas. The organization provides disaster relief in the form of hot meals. 
I spoke with Josh about how World Central Kitchen worked with the Diamond Princess staff to prepare breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the ship. You know, it's basically like setting up a huge business, uh, a restaurant. A lot of times when we're responding in disasters is we're doing, um, you know, uh, full trays full of hot food that are served in sort of a buffet style and salads, but that wasn't possible for this. You know, we had to do individually packaged meals. The team in Japan had to cook, package, and distribute the meals without coming into contact with infected passengers. Taking every precaution, they decided to prepare the food off-site. We all kind of got here within 24 hours of being asked and then set up a plan, uh, found a large kitchen that we could use in Tokyo. And that is where the meals have been made. And um, basically, we've been cooking meals, getting ready a day ahead. The meals were then sent to Yokohama to be refrigerated and eventually reheated in a field kitchen next to the ship. This complex operation is unlike any that World Central Kitchen has taken on before. Everybody's probably working, a, you know, an 18 to 20 hour day. And everyone kind of wore a lot of hats, like uh, Zami was here running the line, but then we had her go down and help join the crew at the dock. And one of our field directors, uh, Sam Block, he was here for most of the time. He just left a couple days early, so someone else took over forklift driving. I mean, we all kind of, we have different titles, a lot of us, but on a mission, it's out the window and everyone's wearing a lot of different hats. When I first heard that the team was making over a thousand packaged meals a day, I expected them to look like cafeteria food. Ham and cheese sandwiches wrapped in plastic, cartons of milk, maybe some carrot sticks. I couldn't have been more off base. You know, our chefs, like I said, they're, they're world-class and we have people come in who take time away from their restaurants, take time away from their food trucks and things like that. World Central Kitchen is not making your average packed lunch. The organization's Instagram features pictures of adobo pork belly, Japanese cabbage slaw, and pasta primavera with blackened cod. When you're quarantined, meals are like the entertainment of the day. We want people to feel like, um, you know, serving food with dignity, with respect. You know, we wouldn't want to serve any meals that weren't of the, of the highest quality or better than what people were receiving before. After nearly a month in quarantine, the last passengers and crew members were let off the ship in early March. The World Central Kitchen team also packed up and left, but they aren't resting yet. I spoke to Josh just a couple of days after he flew from Japan, only to find out that he was already assisting with the disaster relief team in Puerto Rico. To learn more about World Central Kitchen, visit their website at wck.org. Since Ruby filed this story, World Central Kitchen began deploying emergency food logistics to another quarantined cruise ship, the Grand Princess in Oakland, California. Their temporary kitchen facilities were seen setting up just as the ship pulled into shore. If you want to support the work of World Central Kitchen, you can donate at wck.org. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, 
the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor, U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Our next two stories focus on different types of outbreaks that affect global food systems. First, Nicole Cornwell has an update on the devastating locust plague making its way through East Africa and South Asia. Climate scientists have been warning of the severe effects climate change will have on the most vulnerable countries in the world. Unfortunately, these consequences are no longer abstract and are currently jeopardizing the food security of millions. Swarms of desert locusts have been ravaging various regions of Africa since October. Originating in Yemen, the cloud of insects arrived in Ethiopia and have since spread rapidly. The United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization has a large network of satellite and human monitors that observe local conditions in order to forecast locust swarms in at-risk areas. But this recent outbreak began in a remote part of the Arabian desert, where the locust population grew undetected and quickly. In 2018, there were two major cyclones that brought perfect breeding conditions to the Arabian desert. The unseasonably warm, wet conditions allowed the locusts to spread and increase in population. As individual insects mature and band together, a swarm can consist of thousands or even millions. And because breeding conditions have been so favorable, the plague has reached tens of millions of locusts. They lay their eggs in the soil and have the potential to increase their population 20-fold every three months. According to the United Nations, a single swarm can travel about 95 miles in a day, eating its weight in food. Which means that as the swarm currently overwhelms various regions of Africa and Asia, it endangers the food supply of millions that rely on vegetation and farming. The recent invasion has also coincided with a healthy season of crop in places like Kenya, providing locusts with plenty of food. Officials and local farmers have been battling the swarm with chemical pesticides, contaminating fertile soil and making it difficult to recover from the insects eating their crops. As a desperate measure, some locals have also tried to discourage the locusts from breeding by shouting, banging pots and pans, and even shooting guns into the swarm. In a region like South Sudan, already devastated in recent years by both drought and flooding, the locust swarms could lead to famine for millions of people. Somalia and Pakistan have both declared the locust plague a national emergency. Humanitarian groups are now focusing on aerial spraying to control and prevent breeding and gathering aid to help farmers recover from loss of crops as well as food shortages. Our final story is about past outbreaks that have shaken our food system. Dana Cowan is speaking broadly, interviews investigative reporter Christine Hawney about E. coli outbreaks and instances of food fraud. And what about the case of the honey? Because the, the honey was diluted, right? It was yes. adulterated. It was adulterated, and in some cases with antibiotics. 
Oh! Yes. Yeah, so that's why you wanted to stay away from that contaminated <laughs> contaminated honey. And that's one of our biggest food fraud cases in U.S. history. Tell me about that. Because I knew that um, the honey was adulterated, but I did not realize it had been... Like, who would spend the money to dose with antibiotics? Yeah, that the, the, the honey was coming from China, and it was being mislabeled and making its way through a company in Chicago and then also implicating another company in Texas. One of the things I loved about reporting on that case is one of the guys who was like a kingpin in it, he went to Harvard undergrad and Harvard Business School. And then you just kind of get into these like very fascinating debates of like... You had options. You did not have to go into the world of committing fraud. And so much of what you see when you kind of investigate crime is that people resort to that because they don't have options. So food criminals are also fascinating because they have choices. Is it greed? Yeah, I do find that greed definitely has something to do with it. It's laziness. In the Peanut Corporation of America case, the peanut butter that killed people... They have emails where they knew the peanut butter was contaminated and they had executives saying, like, just ship it anyway, and they had that documented. So that shows kind of willful ignorance. And maybe they don't believe that the worst outcome would happen because obviously if the worst outcome is people die, eventually you would get tagged for that. Yes. You know, I mean, like they think they can get away with it, which is one of the reasons that they uh, think they could do it. Our food to hear more, check out episode 124 of Speaking Broadly, titled Death and Salad with Christine Hawney. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Kevin Chang Barnum, Ruby Walsh, Nicole Cornwell, and McGill Webb. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And you can write us anytime at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.